There's probably some uh, someone in uh, Hungary or Ukraine on some podcast bitching about <laughs> Yorkshiremen using their, using their using their country and landscape as a creative tool and ignoring what it's really like. Yeah, that's a really good point. The metaphor came to me at nine o'clock in the morning, so I was enjoying coffee with cake at the Central Cafe. I made a note on my napkin. A bit generous heart. Mm. You're a bit of a softie, aren't you? <laughs> um, oof, I am. I certainly am, in some ways. I'm sentimental, I would say, at times. I suppose you are going to say, I replied as I drew out my wallet, that a perfect metaphor is like a map in one-to-one scale. A map of a city that is the same size as the city. A marvellous map in which one might live, make a home, raise a family, conduct business. Photorealist painter. I'm here, with all due respect to photorealist painters, to do something more than that. I would like to think. And again, we're back to Big shout out to the photorealist painters. Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Last week, Linda Mannheim broke my heart. Because it can be happy for a while, but no one's happy forever all the time. Oh, not really, surely. Come on, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> and read from her story those last days. Over the next few weeks, I'll be putting my emotional health on the line with Ariel Markin Jack, Robert Newworth, and Liam Hogan. But this time we're confronting the meaninglessness of existence with Richard Smith. He started off gently with a brief reading from his story, Caroli Balin's Metaphor. The metaphor came to me at nine o'clock in the morning, as I was enjoying coffee with cake at the Central Cafe. I made a note on my napkin. The waiter, an angular young man with a moustache, came to take away my plate. Waiters are adept at reading at strange angles or upside down. It comes from reading the things people write on napkins. So when I saw him squinting at my note, I folded the napkin briskly away into my breast pocket and said, I have come up with the most wonderful metaphor. Not that it is any of your business. As he lifted my plate, the waiter, who I suppose had once taken a few classes in philosophy at the university, said, Then you are on the brink of a paradox, sir, for the most wonderful metaphor is not a metaphor at all but the thing itself. I suppose you are going to say, I replied as I drew out my wallet, that a perfect metaphor is like a map in one-to-one scale, a map of a city that is the same size as the city, a marvellous map in which one might live, make a home, raise a family, conduct business. I produced a banknote, laid it on the table, and said, Rest assured, sir, I have surmounted this difficulty. The waiter nodded with a constipated expression, took up the banknote, and walked wordlessly away. I stood and brushed down my shirt front. A few sweet crumbs of cake rolled across the tablecloth. There is a story we tell here about a writer, a writer who writes a long novel, his masterpiece, and then cannot find a publisher for it. Many years go by, the novel never sells. Eventually, in despair, the writer posts the manuscript to the oldest and most prestigious publisher in the city along with a note which reads, By the time you read this, I will be gone from this earth. A few days pass. Here the different versions of the story diverge according to the storyteller. The writer finds a banknote in the street or sees a pretty girl beneath a blossoming cherry and his will to live is restored. The writer on the bridge rampart or with his neck in the noose loses his nerve, gets cold feet. In any case, he doesn't go through with the desperate deed 
As all the storytellers agree, when, a day or two later, there is a frantic hammering on the door of the writer's apartment, the writer is there to answer it. Oh, thank goodness, thank goodness you're alive. The writer, to his amazement, recognises the director of the publishing company. Sir, he cries, you received my manuscript. We did, we did, the old gentleman cries, wringing the writer's hand. Thank goodness we did. And you liked it? Oh, no, no, it was dreadful, quite dreadful. We could never publish such a book, says the old gentleman. But, my dear fellow, I am very glad you are alive. The writer waits until the old gentleman has left. Then he sits down at his mean table, takes a new steel razor, and cuts his own throat. Can Balint avoid this poor writer's tragic fate? Will the waiter have his philosophical revenge? And just exactly what is Caroli Balint's marvellous metaphor? To answer all these central questions, head to fictionable.world and sign in, or subscribe to a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics from all around the world for £20. Taking a deep breath, I asked Smith if his metaphorical story came to him while sitting in a cafe enjoying coffee and cake. Well, I do spend a lot of time sitting in cafes with coffee and sometimes cake. But no, I'm afraid my writing process is always crushingly literal and prosaic in that I probably had the idea when I was sitting at my desk. And I do remember it was the first scene that came to me first, which again is that way it tends to work. I don't know why, and I do hope none of your questions is going to be... What's it all about? That's the next <laughs> because... one. What's it all about? We've got to know. <laughs> Up to a certain point, I can tell you, but I have really no idea. As so often, I had an idea, I had a scene, and uh, I just started writing and see what came out. Yeah, and then it was. But what about the setting? The central cafe in, well, it's loosely based on a place in Budapest, which I have been to once, but it could have been anywhere. I mean, it's the kind of name. Actually, I'll circle back to that because it couldn't have been anywhere, but it. It's not a concrete place, put it that way. Not a concrete place, perhaps, but it's very Budapest-ish. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a very strange relationship with Hungary and with Budapest, particularly, given that I have no connections to Hungary. I've no Hungarian language. I'm not very well read in Hungarian literature. I've had one city break to Budapest. A city break? (laughs) That makes you an expert. (laughs) Well, plenty of people would uh, claim to be an expert on less familiarity. For some reason, I'm slightly haunted by... I can't really say by Budapest as a city because I've, you know, I've only strolled around it for a couple of days and drunk coffee and drunk beer there. But as a sort of entity, and this is in some ways terribly unsound because, of course, Budapest is a living city with its own voices and its own stories to tell. And so it's terrible in a way for me to say that I think of it as a sort of abstract place. But because historically it's been so largely defined by exile, by so many of the people we know from Budapest, uh, people who left it, and Hungary has always had this slightly outsiderish quality, is that a fair thing to say? In that, I don't know if you're very familiar with the story of the Martians, the Hungarian Martians. I think this is where my fascination started. Oh, go on, tell us the story of the Hungarian Martians. This was in the um, 1940s, during the Manhattan Project in America. And of course, the arts and sciences in America were people richly by Hungarian exile, sciences particularly, and nascent nuclear science particularly. So the Manhattan Project was dominated even by American Hungarians or Hungarians. So you've got you know, von Neumann, von Kármán, Eugene Wigner, Edward Teller. And so there was this joke sprang up. Because Hungarians speak a language that's completely unconnected to any other language, except possibly Finnish, 
because all these scientists basically had no home, it's quite a dark way to look at it, but they didn't seem to have a, a headquarters, so to speak. And because they were all brilliantly, frighteningly gifted, the joke went around that they weren't Hungarians, they were Martians, and that, that Hungary was a cover for a crash-landed spaceship. And there's a great story about Eugene Wigner. Someone put this to him that the Hungarians were Martians, and he just said, Teller must have talked, <laughs> which, which I've always liked. And so this whole idea of Budapest and Hungary is a source of exiles as much as a source of internal achievement is really interesting to me. And so for some reason, my fiction has always circled Budapest in this slightly hazy, dreamlike, half-familiar way without me entirely knowing why. So I think this is the fourth story I've written that has a Hungarian uh, content. But again, it's in a slightly oblique way, as you say. What about the period? I like to cheat these days with historical... I mean, I've written enough historical fiction. I've paid my dues. I've done my research writing a lot of my historical fiction, but it's sometimes convenient to write in a a no-when, if you like, a sort of indefinite place. Because sometimes I don't want the story to be about the time. And when you write historical fiction, it's quite hard to do that. If you're being specific, you're sort of expected to explore the history. Sometimes you just want a time or a place to be a setting, and that sounds a bit cheap, and it's not. It's obviously hugely important. You can find a place for it. If you look at history, you can see where this story would work, but that's just somewhere for a story to happen, which I think is a perfectly healthy approach. It's more of a kind of feel than a kind of specific Mm. zone. It's a vibe. It's not a history, it's a vibe. (laughs) And it's just what works for the story. I'm a big believer in the primacy of the story. And this is something that I've said when I've taught workshops or whatever on historical fiction, on putting natural history into your writing, because nature writing is something I do a lot of. And in both cases, one of my main messages is that all that stuff is secondary. And the fiction, for want of a better word, the art, is what comes first. And so I think a lot of people, when they start writing something that has a lot of information content, so historical fiction or science fiction even, it's very easy to feel like the information is the boss and you're subservient to it and your story is subservient to it. But I don't see that at all. I think it's really important for writers to put the story first and to put the work first and everything else is for you to use as you wish. If I can, I like to empower new writers with that knowledge that you're in charge, this is your resource, and it's the work you're doing that is the important thing, not doing justice to or serving the historical record. Other people are doing that. You know, historians are doing that. Your work is the creative work. I might circle back to historical fiction again in a minute and maybe even round again to Eastern Europe, but I just wanted to actually put you on the spot. What's the mysterious metaphor? What is it? Tell us. No, I can't. I'm not telling you. And like I say, I wish I knew. The way stories come to me is always very strange and always very enigmatic. And I can always remember sort of one or two elements of it where it starts and then the rest comes out in the writing. Honestly, this just started with the image of the guy in the cafe coming up with a marvellous metaphor. But as for what the metaphor is, uh, I think that's for every reader to decide for themselves. (laughs) Is Is that a neat enough loophole for me to slip out of yeah yeah give that one a try <laughs> <laughs> about the historical fiction i mean you do keep returning to it i mean it's it's in your national short story award shortlisted my cosby district it's um sorry i can't say that name properly my cosby <laughs> district adike oblast am i saying that right <laughs> oh, God, that's me i just wrote it i don't speak it <laughs> and also in much of your other short fiction as well as your novels fleet lane and the woodcock Does that historical setting, does that allow you, as David McAllister says in The Woodcock, to look beyond the bloody newspaper headlines? It does. I mean, in some ways it's a resource, it's a way into writing about stuff you want to write about and not writing about stuff you don't want to write about. I think, if I'm honest, something that pushes me towards historical fiction is I don't want to engage with a lot of stuff that's in the modern world. And it's not necessarily in a squeamish way, just I'm not that interested in it. And if you're writing 
in the modern world, it's sometimes, depending obviously on what you're writing, it's sometimes incumbent on you to address certain things that it would be absurd not to address. And I don't really want to do that. So you retreat, <laughs> uh, in a sense, into the past or sometimes into a different place or into fantasy. But it is also a way of exploring new new worlds because the past is a well, the past is a foreign country. Yeah. LP Hartley said, and that's you know it's 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 fun for want of a better word. It's creatively, intellectually fun once you've got a grounding in what you're writing about to explore it in your writing. The history research bit is interesting, but that's historians' work. The really fun bit is creatively handling these materials that come to you through your research. Well, one thing I had to do do is try to because even though I did write. A, probably more historical fiction than not, which feels quite weird to say, but it's probably true, is that I try to make the people still people. I think that's one of the consistent, one of the few consistent themes in my writing is that I try to make, I wouldn't want any readers to think that people in the past were that different from people now. Even if they were, it wouldn't be possible to write the way I do about them, the way most historical fiction writers do about them. So I think that is one of the important jobs of the um, historical novelist or short story writer well, as it is when you write about different places or different societies, different cultures, it's just the same. One thing you tend to stress is the universal humanity of your characters. That applies to time as well as to place and culture and other kinds of distance. Even if you're retreating, though, into the past in some sense, the contemporary culture is always there. I mean, Carolee Balant is, in a sense, kicked into motion by that realisation in Borges' On Exactitude in Science, or... In The Woodcock, you've got Cordelia Shakes lamenting that there's no vengeance in heaven on earth, like the vengeance your world takes on a woman who makes mistakes. These issues, they get in there anywhere, don't they? Of course. But then are they getting into there from here or are they getting into here from there? Again, it's this universality. It's obviously true as well that I am a product of my own times. The themes that I see in the past, the themes that any of us see in the past, are in anything else. We see them because of who we are, whether we see the themes that are relevant to us now or, alternatively, if we shy away from the similarities and look for the differences, as people often do. It's tempting to make a connection between the bleakness of the steppe mm. and the stereotypical grimness of the north of England. <laughs> do you think there's some sort of vibe going on there? Well, if I wasn't northern, maybe I'd be writing about the north instead of Eastern Europe and, uh, <laughs> and the Russian steppe. Yeah, that's perfectly possible, actually. I think we all need a other land, don't we, to reach for when we're writing about, you know, we want to evoke a certain atmosphere or a certain theme. I see the North in detail, obviously. I can see its complexity and texture, and I think that's a good point, actually. If I wasn't from here, maybe the North would supply that, and this is perhaps, well, now I feel bad, because perhaps this is why there's so much bad writing about the North by non-Northerners. There's probably some uh, someone in uh, Hungary or Ukraine on some podcast bitching about <laughs> Yorkshiremen using their, using, their, using their country and landscape as a creative tool and ignoring what it's really like. Yeah, that's a really good point, because we all have these sort of half-real landscapes, and they can be close to home. I mean, they don't have to be the other side of the continent. In my defence, I would say I would do that about familiar places as well. When I start to write about familiar places, they quickly become unfamiliar. I think Martin Amis says somewhere that it's impossible to put real things or real places in fiction because the fiction just immediately warps them out of shape, which I think is really true. It's something I try to do because I think it's not really possible. When I have written about the places I know pretty well, they're very quickly transformed within my head. Again, to serve my purposes, I'm not a photorealist painter. I'm here, with all due respect to photorealist painters, to do something more than that, I would like to think. <laughs> and again, we're back to Carolee Bylint and his metaphor. We're here to find something bigger, not just to match what we see, but to exceed it, to go beyond it. You're making stuff up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's it. Very important not to lose sight of the fact that we are making stuff up. Yeah, making stuff and adding to it, building on it. That's the job. Do you feel like you're a northern writer? 
Yeah, but only in the most literal sense that I am from the north. <laughs> I've just written a review, actually, on a new book on Yorkshire. It seeks to do this sort of old chestnut thing of looking behind the stereotypes and you know, exploring what it really means to be from Yorkshire. And I don't think it really means anything to be from Yorkshire except so that you would come from Yorkshire. I mean, there's a line in the book where he says that the most quintessentially Yorkshire footballer is David Batty. I don't know if you know who David Batty is, but he was a England midfielder, Leeds United midfielder from the 90s. Very sort of down-to-earth lads, rough-and-tumble, solid midfielder. And he was supposedly the quintessential Yorkshire footballer. It's a strange idea to me. I was born in Wakefield, grew up in Wakefield, live in Bradford, have lived in Leeds. And yet I could be considered less Yorkshire than someone who is just who happens to be like the Leeds United midfielder David Batty. I mean, it's a strange way of looking at northernness to me. I think when people talk about northernness and the qualities of northernness, more often than not, they're talking about class, which is a fine and good thing to talk about, but people tend to say northern or Yorkshire or that kind of thing, rather than face up to the fact that they are going to have to do some class analysis. <laughs> it's actually much easier to say, oh, Yorkshire people have these quintessential down-to-earth, call a spade a spade qualities, and, you know, we don't. You don't get classes when, you, when you're born in telling it like it is and not suffering fools. So, yeah, I, I'm just sceptical of the whole idea, and I don't think it's a chance that some of the worst books I've read, which I won't name... Go on. <laughs> don't tempt me, honestly. Um, <laughs> you know, books about the North with capital letters. I think David Peace, who I'd respect as a writer, I think he has a lot to answer for, conjuring this other land. I mean, he's from just up the road from me. He's from Osset, literally a mile away from where I grew up. It's a fantasy North. Even though he, know, he knows the North, obviously, he's a Northern writer. But at the same time, no matter how close to home he's writing about, it's a fantasy. It's a 70s, rainy, fag-smoke, foul-mouth fantasy of the North. Which isn't to say it's not full of truths. We tell lies in order to reach better truth. But I think it's done the North a disservice in the simple sense that it's not a picture of the North, and that's not how you have to write about the North. You know, it's not literature's job to do the North a service or a disservice. It's not relevant, really. So that's not a criticism of... Of the work, it's just it's had a slightly unfortunate effect, I think, in literary perceptions of the North and also how writers from and are writing about the North feel they have to take it on. It's given a free reign to a lot of portentous, thudding, uh, monochrome portraits of uh, the bleak North. I should add, the North always tends to mean, well, it, overwhelmingly it means Yorkshire. Often it means Yorkshire and sort of Manchester, maybe. But my wife's from Whitley Bay up in Newcastle and she just looks aloofly on the, on the whole debate because we're all just Midlanders to her. I think there's also some yeah strange geographical uh, stuff going on there. Looking at the rest of your work, there's quite a bit of first-person narration mm. going on. I wonder if you start things in the third person and find yourself drawn inexorably closer or if it's just the voice that gets things going. Yeah, that's a really good point. I do you're overwhelmingly write in the first person. I'm just better at it. I, write, I try to write things in the third person and people don't tend to like them so much. So... <laughs> I go back to the first, yeah. Voice is so important to me. So much springs from that. That's generally what I begin with, without having much else as a rule. And if I've got that, if I've got the voice, I feel I can do what I want. I think I feel a bit constrained by third person. I'm not entirely sure why, but it never seems to run as fluently. In the first person, I have the opposite problem in that talking in, or writing in a voice that you come to like, well, it's a pleasure. And sometimes that overruns what discipline you need to actually create something that works. I mean, my writing is not very disciplined anyway. I don't have a very, um, how to describe it, uh, rambling is perhaps a bit harsh, but it's, it's certainly not um, strictly portioned out or 
rigorously structured. It's not by accident that I work like that. I mean, that is how I like fiction to be. Talking in, in a new voice is such an absolute delight. That is basically one of the reasons why I write. And once you do that, once you have the voice, you go into new places, you're exploring new things, you're voicing new thoughts, because even if it feels like the same old thought, if you're voicing it in a new voice, it becomes a new thought. This is why writing with precision is important to me. This is why I'm a very sentence-focused writer. I don't want to say the same things. And the way to avoid saying the same things as everyone else is just to say exactly what you want to say. And then it becomes a new thing, even if only slightly. And first person is obviously very good for that. I can't just say it's just more fun, <laughs> but it is more fun. Yeah, and it's, it takes you to more interesting places. Is it partly because that's what fiction is really all about, is an intimate connection with somebody else's life? Yeah, I think so. I find third person restrictive in that I want to see inside. So if I do do third person, I end up doing a lot of that slightly awkward jumping inside people, you know, which is obviously possible and valid, but it gets a bit awkward when every character you feel like you want to jump inside them and do a little sort of ventriloquist act through them. And you're not allowed to do that in proper third person writing. So yeah, I do want to get close. I don't want to get into the whole show and tell discussion about technique because it's quite boring, but it's so much easier to show when you're controlling from the inside. I'm much, much less interested in what people do than who they are. That's obvious from anyone who reads any of my stuff. You know, I like a good story and I think I can plot with the best of them when I want to, but it's not something that really interests me. The third person is really designed for saying, he went there, she went there, she did this, they did this. And the first person isn't really designed for that. If that's what you're focusing on, it can quickly get a little bit awkward because you don't have the omniscient view. But it's fine with me to not have the omniscient view. I'm much more interested in seeing through those other eyes, looking out through those eyes and looking in to see what's going on inside. Is it partly because omniscience seems a bit presumptuous here in the 21st century? That omniscient perspective, the idea that anyone can know everything, just seems a bit cocky. <laughs> yeah, well, it does, yeah. I don't find it very easy to go that far away from people. Even my third person stuff is quite close. I am very fond of the Dickensian, you know, sweeping through the city from person to person. And I wish I could do that. We're so deep into sort of post-postmodernism now, and we all have to think about who is telling the tale and... Uh, all that sort of stuff that you have to get into. <laughs> Again, I'm not very interested in that. And once I start doing it, I, maybe I'm just too much of my time, but I can't stop mucking about with it. If I start in the third person, I end up not only just switching to the first person for individuals, but I end up thinking about, well, who is the narrator? Do they get involved? Do they have to get involved? Is it legitimate for them not to do that? And I end up doing all this tricksy stuff. I can't keep straight. So I don't have the, I guess it's a kind of discipline to just tell a story straight, and it's just not that interesting to me. So, yeah, that's another reason. One of the ways you might perhaps not be quite so fiercely contemporary is that <laughs> the delightful element in your fiction of its generous heart. <laughs> You're a bit of a softie, aren't you? <laughs> um, oof. I am. I certainly am, in some ways. I'm sentimental, I would say, at times. I would say, I mean, The Woodcock, which was my last novel, was probably the most outright expression of this, in that there's a lot in there about love a lot of emotion and some tender feelings. But the backdrop, my worldview, my, my view of that world, is incredibly bleak um, and forbidding. I mean, love is a subject that I come back to again and again. It's kind of an obsession in my fiction. But I see that within a very meaningless universe, uh, without wishing to sound too goth about it. You know, I'm a, I'm a kind of a rationalist, atheist, and I'm pretty comfortable with that. I don't hate or fear the world, particularly. But I do see it as a pretty meaningless place when we don't have human connection. And this is why humanity and the doings of humans 
it's such a valuable theme to me because it all goes on within this rather bewildering and in some ways terrible chaos. It's hard to go back and then say, yeah, I'm sentimental. But yeah, I am in terms of people because people are really important. Misanthropy is one thing that I will always try and reject in my fiction and sort of in my politics as well. It's a corrosive position and one that you see much more than I'd like. I have what seem like contrary positions in that I'm not particularly a people person, you know. Uh, people who know me would maybe scratch their heads when I'm saying, oh, aren't people marvellous? Well, uh, people are all right. I think my, my basic position is people are all right. They're just they're fine. You know, everyone's just roughly all right and everybody's capable of good things and where all there is, that's worth something. In fact, it's worth a great deal. You know, I don't have to believe people are marvellous and gleaming souls. Or for that matter, the other way. To see them as they are is just to see that people are just people and they're doing all right. And so, yeah, I have a a deep, warm attachment to humanity and a deep awareness, I guess, of the meaningless of everything else. You're clearly in love with nature, though. I mean, even in the city, Caroli notices the golden scrambled sunlight by the Great River and spots the grebe being pestered by the gulls. It's the natural world, another thing that sort of worms its way in, whether you want it to or not. Yeah, absolutely is, yeah. Nature is great for thinking with and writing with. It's just a resource that is so valuable because it's so rich and it's so complicated and complicated is basically gold dust for me. Anything that conjures more ideas that sets you spinning off on you know ricochets of thought and feeling, that's what you're after. And nature, once you start noticing it, is full of it. And, but again, we're back to exactly the same theme as what I was just saying, really, in that I am fairly unusual, perhaps, among nature writers in that well, love isn't the word. Love, I love being in nature. I love exploring nature. I'm a bird watcher. I love doing it. But love is too simple a word for what I feel about nature as a whole or as a phenomenon. And I, I have very little sort of love beyond the very superficial. I have a great deal of fondness for it in that it's largely horrible. <laughs> There's a lot of double thinkers. I mean, a lot of people write about nature because you have to, I think you have to, I would have to try very hard to not, notice how grim nature often is how uncaring it is and to pay attention to nature properly is to have a very complex relationship with it that you can't describe as anything so simple as love there's so much darkness in it that's why it's interesting to me in the same way that the best fiction is interesting to me it has all this light and shade it has all this texture perhaps it's even more difficult sitting here in the anthropocene to write about nature without covering that kind of dark side of it is there a particular duty for 21st century writers to look at the world around them look properly well there's always a duty for writers to look properly that's the one thing that i think writers should be doing other than that i'm wary of saying what a writer's duty should be you know the duties to the work and doing good work i don't think there's necessarily a social responsibility but there is a social responsibility to do the right things as a human and if your job is writing then as a human it's probably your job to pay attention to the important things To a great extent, climate change is a human tragedy, even though in terms of how many of us there are and how well we're doing, we're we're doing better than a majority of species. But it's a human tragedy because we're the only ones who really care. As the world changes, living things don't want to die, but nor are they looking at readouts of climate breakdown and worrying about sustainable futures. Life has always been incredibly hard for non-human creatures. And so... I don't have it in me, really, to frame climate change as a tragedy for them because every day is a tragedy for the majority of wild creatures. I mean, sadly, statistically, it's a war zone out there for the non-human, and it always has been. And so I think only in human terms does it become monumental. 
partly because it's us that's doing it and it says so much about our human frailty and stupidity and partly because it's us that will suffer in, in, in unique ways. When things change and other creatures, other ecosystems have to change with it, well, that won't be anything living systems haven't done before. It will be things that we haven't done before. So I decouple all that slightly from writing about nature because I think it's more of a human theme than a, than a nature theme. But it's something where the natural world, as we sometimes call it, is uniquely under threat. Yeah, but again, that's a tragedy for us more than for them. The losses are tragic, and when we consider where we might be, well, where we are now, in the perspective of where we've come from, and I wrote a book called An Indifference of Birds, where I explored this. In fact, I've explored it in most of my nature books, but just explored the sense of how bad it gets and how gradually and how we don't feel the, the tightening of the clamp because it happens day by day, and we're very bad at dealing with that. I think I faced up to it more in my non-fiction than in my fiction, but I think I'm possibly more interested in facing up to it in a slightly more oblique way, which is, you know, <laughs> literary fiction writers uh, get out clause. Yeah, I will deal with this, but I'm going to deal with it in an oblique <laughs> way, which means just I do it however the hell I want. It's very interesting to look at what it will do to us and our sense of ourselves and our sense of the world we live in, how we live, our sort of guilt, our anxiety. As a nature writer, it will be my job to chronicle the losses. You know, I do do that to the best of my ability. But I think our responsibility as fiction writers, as creative writers, goes beyond that sort of bookkeeping to explore some more profound consequences of what we've done. And what those are will not always be obvious. And even when we write about them, they might not be obvious. But we will have to engage with the stuff that's not just, look, there used to be these birds here and now they've gone, or there used to be these plants here and now they've gone. Not that that isn't monumental in its own way, but I think there will be more bigger things than that to write about that, that relate to that. By engaging with it, by engaging with it in fiction, do you think you can do anything to try and address it? No, not really. Unless you're going to be, you know, Charles Dickens or Upton Sinclair and write a campaigning novel on a specific theme, which is never going to be something I'm any good at, and not a literary accomplishment in the same sense. Because, well, you know, nobody reads books, and people who read books don't read literary fiction, and people who read literary fiction don't read my literary fiction. So um, you'd like to think that a book can change the world, and maybe it can, but I don't think you can really change the world by being a good book. I don't think that's enough. Um, well, as I said in a review of a book by Tim D, who's a writer I'm a huge admirer of, he wrote a book called Greenery, which was about a great deal of things, like all Tim D's books are. But it was about the coming of spring. It's also about his own physical decline. It's an incredible book, but when I reviewed it, I said that it was a strange book to write about in, in the sense, as you said, of the Anthropocene and the Great Extinction and climate breakdown, and all these kinds of things. And there's all these books coming out, very, very good, important books, telling us what's wrong and telling us what to do and telling us how bad everything is and what we can do to change it. Those are all great things. And what I said about Tim D's book was that it's not the kind of book that will save the world, but it's the kind of book that makes the world worth saving. And I think if I have an ambition, it's to be in that latter category rather than the former one. Not to say that one is more important, just that in terms of what... I do and what I want to do. Um, I think literature serves a slightly different purpose than pulling us back from the brink. I think it's going to take more than some good books, sadly. Stories to make the world worth saving? Well, keep plugging away at that. That was Richard Smith. To read Caroli Balance Metaphor, as well as brand new stories from Linda Mannheim, Ariel Markin Jack, Robert Newworth, and Liam Hogan. 
Brush the crumbs from your shirt front and head to fictionable.world. For £20, you'll get a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics from all over the world, which you can enjoy on your mobile, tablet or laptop computer. You'll also unlock our ever-expanding archive, with stories from writers including Lucy Caldwell, Arunze Fakandu, Edgar Kerrett, Adania Shibley and many more. If you want to tell us what you think of our podcast, our blogs and, of course, our stories, add us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter, or just email us on info at fictionable.world. Send us your thoughts in audio to that same address, and who knows, you might just crop up on a future edition of the Fictionable Podcast. Next time, Ariel Markin Jack resolves an eternal question. Like many people, I have, at various points in my life, tried to figure out whether or not I did in fact need boys... And reads from their story, The Bread Boy. With thanks to Richard Smith, that's all for this week. So from me, Richard Lee, and everybody at Fictionable Towers, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.